We are glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Hebrews. Um, we will be there uh, today. Uh, we've been going through our series this fall. Our series will be through the book of Hebrews. Um, and uh, we've been walking through it. The, the title is Consider Jesus. The title that we always have for our sermon series come from the scriptures. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brothers and companions, that's the church, he's talking to the church, in a heavenly calling, the fact that we're called to live for him and to live for the, where we're supposed to be someday, heaven itself, he says, consider Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, we have got to consider Jesus in every aspect of our lives. We've got to think through that. And so the author is asking people to think about their lives. He's writing to Hebrews. So he's writing to people who know the Old Testament. They know their Bible. Many of them have come to faith as Jesus, as their Messiah. In other words, they believe that Yahweh saves. The Old Testament Yahweh God is Jesus. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. That's what his name means. And so they've literally said, we believe this man is Yahweh saves. He is God who saves the world. He is Jesus, the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. And so that's where these people are at. These people are at a place where they're now turning away from their faith. The world has got them. They've been considering anything. And that's why two weeks ago we talked about the fact that their attention began to drift. And so in, the, the author says, hey, look, your attention's drifting away. And I need you to pay even more attention to what you've heard. And these people would have heard the, old, the entire Old Testament. All the Bible, raised in it, known it, just like destiny, growing up in church, hearing the Bible every day. That's where these Hebrews would have been that. And he's like, I know you think you pay attention. I know you think you know the Bible. I think you grew, you know, you, you grew up in church. You need to pay even closer attention. Because you might be missing some things and you're drifting away. And he tells them, you're drifting away from faith in Jesus and now you're placing your faith in other things. Or you're placing your faith in the Old Testament, old system instead of recognizing that the whole Old Testament system is pointing to Jesus. The whole Old Testament is trying to get us to consider that Jesus is Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah that the entire Old Testament was about. So he's writing and he's saying, you need to consider this. You've got to think about this in your life. Last week, we looked at the fact that the author then goes on in 3.13 and says, again, I will trust in him. Do you really trust in him? See, we trust in a lot of things, and we looked at that last week. And once you make your decision to trust in him, here's the key. There is going to be a tendency, once you've kind of put your attention on him, you've, you've, you've prayed to receive Christ, ask him, you've surrendered your heart to him, there is going to be a tension that's been there throughout all of human history, and that tension is this, that we are going to harden our hearts and not find rest. The Bible is clear. When you read through Scripture, it is over and over again the story of people hardening our hearts against what God has said, against his Savior, Jesus, against the things of God, and saying, no, I don't want that. I'm not doing that. That's fine. If you want it, no, not me. And we begin to build these walls. We harden our hearts and we won't allow God to get our attention. We won't trust him with the things of our life. We've got to be in control. We've got to take them. And when we do that, we harden our hearts. And when you harden your heart, you will not, I promise you, you will not find rest for your soul. You will chase everything to try to find happiness and peace and rest. And you will not find it. And what you'll accidentally end up doing is hardening your heart even worse. Because at everything we put in our life, every idol, everything we try to put in to make ourselves feel restful, joyful, happy, all those things that only God can give, our heart becomes even harder towards God because we get mad at him. Are you ready for this? That he's not blessing our effort. Let me say that again. We get mad at God because he's not blessing our effort. I've worked hard. I've done all this. I, you should help me rest. You should make me feel happy. And I don't feel happy. And, and so we try something else. And then we get mad at God again and mad at God again. I'm always amazed. I have had numerous conversations with atheists. And only once or twice ever have they looked at me and said, I'm not participating in a conversation with a crazy person. 
You're nuts. You believe that God walked the earth, that there is a God, he became man in flesh. I'm not talking to some. I wouldn't talk to someone who believed in aliens and thought that they lived in their house or they inhabited their body. Done with you. See, that's what a true atheist would do. But see, there aren't really true atheists. Most atheists are just agnostics. That means, well, I leave the potential or the possibility for a higher power, but I'm going to fight him at every turn. That's a hardened heart. Now, isn't it great that our God, who created mankind and mankind turned against him, is in the business of making soft hearts? Taking our hearts of stone, the Bible says, and turning them to hearts of flesh. You see, the key in all of this is is for us to consider Jesus. So this morning, I would say what the author says three different times in this passage, quoting the Old Testament. He says, today, today online, here, hear his voice. The Bible is the word of God. He is actually trying to speak to us. It's his love letter to us. It's his truth to us. He is saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart today. Your tendency with some of the things we're going to look at or hear is to harden your heart. I don't believe that. I don't want that. Just, I I ask you to consider that this might be true. And if it is, I ask you to consider, consider what it means for your life. Because it goes on to say, let us then make every effort to enter the rest that God has for us. And let me tell you, there is a rest that God has for you. He wants you to rest in him in the midst of the mess we are in. And we are in a mess. Y'all have masks on right now. (laughs) Hello, there's a mess, (laughs) right? You get to breathe your mess in and out every day. All the stuff you put out that's bad, you just get to breathe it back in all day long. It's wonderful. We're in a mess But it's nothing new. Humanity's been in a mess for a long, long time. So let's dive in. Hebrews 3.1. We just read this, but here's the whole passage. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all of God's household. So the author right here, he's gone two chapters, and in chapter three, he's saying, look, I'm talking to believers. I'm talking to people who, who at least are willing to consider Jesus. That you're thinking about, is there eternity? Is there eternal life? Is there heaven beyond this life? Is there something more than this life? That's who I'm speaking to. And then he says, consider Jesus. Consider how he lived his life and consider what he said about the life to come. And it says, he was the ultimate apostle. That means the ultimate first pro- like proclaimer, the one that came, the, the, the beginning. He's the ultimate high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest would offer sacrifices. Once a year, the high priest would go in to offer a sacrifice. Do you realize that right now in our culture, the last several days, we have been consumed, we've been in awe of 9-11. It started about, I don't know, I saw on September 7th, right around Labor Day, right? That people started talking about what's coming up, that all the news stations, everybody, was, even ESPN was talking about here are the specials we're going to have for the 20th anniversary of 9-11, all these things. And, and I watched a little bit yesterday. Even the football games had special memories. The Mets, and the New York Mets, the New York Yankees played yesterday because of New York. It's now a tradition for them to play. It's, it's a moment that changed our culture and that actually we still are in awe of it and keep bringing it up. But as I said last Sunday, do you realize that we are actually in the days of awe that God gave about 6,000 years ago to his people? That on Labor Day, it was Rosh Hashanah, the declaration of the Jewish New Year. And that declaration was given by the priests and the high priest to say, get your hearts ready because Yom Kippur is coming, the day of atonement, when God will pay the price for your sins, where he will forgive you and he will will allow you to consider him. And he says, consider that I want to forgive you, that I love you, and that I want to start fresh with you again this year. I want to start over with you. 
And they would, sell, they would have days of awe, of repentance leading up to that. And then after Yom Kippur, there would be more time. And in those days, they would get themselves ready. They would build these booths. And then they would have the Feast of Tabernacles where they would put a tent outside and cut a hole in it. And Jesus would come in their, their mindset. Yahweh would come and eat with them. It's a picture of our life. That when we come to know Jesus, it's Rosh Hashanah. It's a new moment in our life that we're to be in awe of him. We begin to recognize our sins. We begin to recognize who we're not and what God's done on our behalf. And then we remember that Jesus is our high priest. We don't have an earthly high priest anymore that goes in one time a year to offer a bull for the nation. We have a high priest that gave his very life for us which is why we don't do the Old Testament sacrifices anymore. It's why the Hebrews didn't have to go back and do the Old Testament sacrifices. The author here is saying, you don't need an earthly high priest anymore. You have a heavenly one, one that's better. And he says, are you willing to confess that? And if you are confessing that, do you recognize that that God himself wants to sit with you and eat with you and fellowship with you? You know, it can be scary to go eat at people's houses sometimes, can't it? Right? What are they having? I'm kind of a picky eater. I remember one time I went to somebody's house. Oh, this is hard. Went to somebody's house and they were having oyster soup. That's hard. And Susan and I, in gratitude, choked it down. The best part about the meal was the fact that, praise God, they burnt the grilled cheese that was going with the soup. So the burnt taste of the grilled cheese killed the taste of the other stuff. So like you wanted, like I took the blackest sandwich because it was like a way to negate the other. Oh, I'll take the really burnt one. Let me have that, right? It was totally selfish because it killed the taste. You also, when you go into someone's house, you don't know their rules. You kind of watch. Like, do they use silverware here? Do they not? Like, are, is there a salad fork? Is there any fork? Like, if you come to our house, you might not get a fork. We might be like, oh, it's in the kitchen. Sorry, it's in the drawer. You can go get it. Like, we look and see, and we have to then respond to how the house is made. That's why the author gets ready to go into talking about a household, and the word house is used six different times in this passage. That he starts talking about what does it look like to build your life, to build a culture, to build a nation To build a house or allow God to build his house through you. Before we dive into the household, though, he mentions Moses. You see, God made a covenant with his people in the Old Testament through Moses. In chapter chapter 6 of Exodus, it says this about Moses. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. They were slaves in Egypt. God sends Moses in to rescue them out. If you know about the life of Moses, he was born when he should have been aborted. All Jewish babies were required to be aborted. And his mother, or all male Jewish babies were required to be aborted. His mother said, no, I'm going to save him. You will not kill the children. And she tried to save him. She put him in a basket. This is a bad strategy, by the way. If you're trying to save your kid, I would not advise you put him in a basket, cover it in pitch, and send him down the river. That just seems like a bad idea. But that's what she did, and God used it. So, hey, if you think you've done stupid things that God's used, there you go. She puts him in a basket, sends him down a river, and Pharaoh's daughter is there and sees the basket, and she falls in love with this little baby, and she cares for Moses as one of her own in the king's palace. It's crazy. And then the mom comes along and says, hey, I, I could nurse him. I could take care of him for you. And she gets to really care for him the rest of her days on behalf of the Pharaoh's prince. I mean, God does some crazy stuff when he's working. Stuff we could never make up or build ourselves. And God does this. Moses then grows up in Pharaoh's house. And as a teenager, he sees an, a Hebrew being abused. And he, he kills an Egyptian who was abusing that. And now he's on the run. He has to flee for his life. He's scared to death. He spends 40 years in the wilderness. And then one day God shows up in a burning bush and says, the ground you're on is holy ground. And Moses takes off his sandals and falls. He listens to God. And God says, I want to use you to go to my people. Listen, 
you may have had a terrible background, but I bet you your, your childhood didn't sound like Moses's. That's awful. Your mom probably didn't put you in a basket and send you down the river. Like, that's awful to grow up in. And yet Moses responds and he says, yes, I won't harden my heart to God. I will respond to him. I'll go serve him. I'll do what he asks. And so he goes and he speaks to the Israelites, but they won't listen. And the reason they won't listen, look at this, is because of their broken and hard, broken spirit and hard labor. Can I just tell you, some of you here have a broken spirit. You're tired. You've labored. And you wonder, where is God? Is it still worth it? Should I still consider Jesus? Because it just doesn't seem like it's paying off. And the life of Moses is a life that even at the end of Moses' life, he doesn't get the rest he thought he wanted because he struck a rock instead of speaking to it. And God's like, oh, i got to judge you. I've got to punish you. I've got to discipline you for that. You now can't go into the promised land yet. You'll go into the promised land one day in the future, but not this one. And Moses climbs a mountain and he dies and God buries him. And Joshua takes him into the promised land. And so here's Moses and he says, they did not listen to him. You may not listen to God because you think, I'm, I hate God. He has broken my spirit. He's made me work hard. This world stinks. That's why most people don't accept God. It's why most people don't listen to God. And even if God sends them a prophet, even if God sends his very son to die for them and live a life, they still won't listen because they're broken in their spirit and they just are, they're hard. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from this land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, if the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me since I'm such a poor speaker? (laughs) I love this. You think you don't speak well and you're intimidated. Moses is like, I can't speak. He's such a bad speaker. He asked, God provided Aaron for him and Aaron was a worse speaker. That did not go well. Moses should have just said, I'll speak and it'll sound terrible. But instead he got Aaron, and Aaron, we'll see in a moment, didn't really do exactly what God wanted. He goes on and he says, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he gave them commands. So here's the deal. Your kids aren't listening to you. People aren't listening to you. So what you need to do is double down on commands. That'll help. That's what God did. God said, you've gone to the people. You've told them, hey, I want them delivered. Now you've got to go to Pharaoh. You've got to go to the leaders and tell them, this is what God says. This is what God says. And I don't know if you've ever had to do that in an authority situation where you have to step up with a county government like I have or step up to someone in your life who who might have a little authority and you come there humbly and caringly, but you're like, "Mm, this is what God says. These are his commands. This is what he says is true. That's hard. And so God looks, and Moses is like, they won't listen to me. So then Moses has to give all these commands. And you know what happens? They they don't listen. Even more, they don't listen. (laughs) They listen even less. Pharaoh gets more and more mad as the plagues come. And and he's like, this is what God said would happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is what God said would happen. To the point where their hearts are so hard that God says, you will have to give your firstborn child if you don't acknowledge that I'm the Passover. And put blood on the doorpost of your home so the angel of death will pass over your home. You have to declare publicly your belief in me. You have to say, we, in this household, we are considering Jesus, the blood that was shed by the lamb. And Jesus is called the lamb of God. And the people hardened their heart. He goes on to say this in Numbers. Because as you think through this, Numbers 22 said, They said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? This is Miriam and Aaron. Remember, I told you, Aaron wasn't that great. Miriam and Aaron decide, well, does the Lord only speak through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? And the Lord heard it. Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. I am absolutely positive God has never said that about me. Positive. I wish, but I know my heart. But he said that about Moses. 
that he was one of the most humble men. And Miriam and Aaron, even though Moses is the most humble man, and even though God has given his loving commands, he has saved them from slavery. They've seen miracle after miracle and God do amazing things in their life. Miriam and Aaron are upset over a relationship decision that Moses Moses makes, and they want to overthrow him. Does that sound familiar in our lives? That we will not trust people unless they tell us what we want to hear, that we're going to harden our hearts towards anybody who doesn't tell us what we want to hear in a relationship or in a circumstance. And that's what Miriam and Aaron do. And Miriam ends up getting leprosy. God curses her with leprosy for a week. And he tells the entire nation, you're going to have to wait on her to get better before you can move and we can move on. Which means everybody knew what happened. It was exposed publicly, the rebellion. See, in our churches today, we just sweep that stuff under the rug. Because we don't want anybody to know. We don't want to hurt anybody. Versus just having an honest discussion that this person's hurting, they're broken, they rebelled, they have leprosy, and we're going to wait and care for them, and we're going to wait on God to tell us what the next step is in this relationship. That's radical. He goes on and says this in Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, and you must listen to him. This is repeated, this phrase from the Old Testament is repeated all the way through the Bible multiple times. It's repeated in Psalms, it's repeated in the Old Testament multiple times, and it's repeated in the New Testament as well. This is a prophetic utterance of Jesus who is to come. That God was going to raise up a prophet, humble like Moses, but perfect, and Moses wasn't perfect. And you better listen to him. You better consider what he has to say. Because he is the son of God. John says it this way. For if you believed Moses, Jesus said, you would believe in me. Because Moses wrote about me. But if you didn't believe in Moses' writings, how will you believe in my words? Even Jesus recognizes, if you just want to dismiss Moses and dismiss the commands, I'm the one that told Moses to write those things. I'm amazed at Christians that we don't even know, I'll say it again, we'll be real excited about Labor Day and real excited about 9-11, events that we can be excited about. We should recognize those, be grateful for those. I'm not saying we can't be. But we have no idea all the feasts and calendar of the Old Testament and how it was a merciful thing for God to give us a calendar of rest. He gave us a plan for rest, an entire nation. He said, do this. Have this feast and this one. Everybody's got to take a break for six days. Then you can do this one. Like he gave us a plan for rest and we're like, nope, I got better ideas. I know how to do this better than anybody else. I'm going to pick up wood on the Sabbath if I want to. I'll do what I want to do. And then we wonder why our hearts are so hard towards everything around us and especially the commands of God and why we seem like we can find no peace and rest. It's because we keep ignoring God. We keep not considering what he says and we don't realize how the whole Bible's connected and instead we just take, well, I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus and got baptized. Now my life's going to get better, right? Because that's what you told me. If I pray a prayer, then now Jesus is going to bless everything I want him to bless. Do you remember the Beatitudes? Matthew 5, go read it. I'm not going to go through it today. Read through Matthew chapter 5 and 6. And what Jesus lays out are the blessings of God. You won't want them. But you'll be like, I don't know that I want these. These are not blessings. Being poor in spirit? Nope, I don't think that's... Being hungry? Nope, that's not a blessing. Being persecuted? He even says three different ways that if you're persecuted, you're blessed. No, that's a curse. That means something's bad. Something wrong is happening. No, it means something good's happening. Because they persecuted Moses. They killed Jesus. What do you expect? What do you expect? If you consider Jesus and you don't harden your heart, then that means you have a heart of flesh. And a heart of flesh that God has changed is easy to hurt. Just like it's really easy for us to hurt God's heart. It is very easy for us to break God's heart. That doesn't mean it affects his decision-making. Just like a good parent, their heart can break for their child, but it won't affect the decision-making or the way they run their household. But their heart will be broken. That's our God. There's no other God on the face of the planet that is that personal, that real, that explains humanity like this. He goes on in John 13. 
Jesus said, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples by the way you love each other. Listen, there's hard or tough love and there's soft love. Both are needed and God has both in the Bible. Sometimes God has very hard love for his people. He put his people in slavery for 70 years. Because of what? Because they ignored 70 Sabbath years of Jubilee. That's why he put them 70 years. It was to make up for when they wouldn't rest. He said, you'll be in slavery in Babylon for 70 years. You're going to die there. But trust me, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and give you a future, a hope and a future. We love to put that on our bathroom above, you know, the bathroom toilet. Right? Which I'm not sure why you would put it there in the bathroom. But maybe it's just, it's such a bad experience for you. You need to be reminded of the plans of God. I don't know. But we will put that there, but we don't realize that that is in the context of God disciplining lovingly his children. Saying, you can trust me that as you go through this, and it's hard and it's a mess, you can consider me and trust me that I'll get you through on the other side, and there is a future hope for you and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. That's what we're to live for. And that's why Jesus says, look, Simon Peter, I love this. He says, if you have love for one another, that proves that you're actually discipled by me, that you have discipline, that you're willing to consider me and allow me to disciple you, discipline you. Listen, you need discipline. I need discipline. We do. We need someone to look at us and say, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Clint has been making fun of, he said it yesterday, and he's so right. We were working on my deck. We were supposed to do the deck together this summer, and you know my summer was a mess. And Clint told somebody the other day, he goes, yeah, my dad was fine until I wasn't watching him anymore, and he put a nail through his foot. True story. True story. Clint was helping me. We were going good, and I looked at him. I said, you go get ready for soccer because you got to get to soccer. I'll take care of this myself. I got this. And in my pride, I'm in a hurry, and I'm doing stuff, and I just step right through a nail, and it comes right through. Puts me down for two weeks because of allergic reaction to antibiotics and a big mess. And Clint's like, see, I left my dad alone. Look what happened. But he's not wrong. Because had he been there, he probably would have been like, dad, that's a nail there. Don't. You can slow down. I'll get it. I'll help you. And if he was helping me, I wouldn't have been in as big a hurry if I would have just waited. Because I would have been like, I would have been like, oh, he's helping me. Okay, I can take my time. We, We can work together. We'll make this happen. We got plenty of time. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get them to see. That if you harden your heart and think, I got this, and it's pride and whatever else, God in his loving mercy will humble you. He will humble you. Not because he's mad, but because he wants to teach you. And he wants to teach sons and daughters what it looks like to trust God instead of trusting yourself. And typically to make that lesson work, he's got to humble the the dad or mom so the kids can go, ooh, mm, ah. And it's a beautiful picture of God's grace for us. Peter goes on and he says, where are you going? Because right before this, he says, I'm going to have to leave you. I'm going to have to die. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? I assure you, a rooster will not crow. Or will, will not crow until you've denied me three times. And we know the story, if you know your Bible, that when Jesus was going to the cross and they asked him, do you know this man? Do, are you considered to be one of his disciples? Do you consider yourself to be with Jesus? Peter said, no, not me, three times. Three times. He had walked with Jesus for three and a third years. He had seen miracles you would love to see, that you will never see, Peter saw. He saw Jesus walking on water. Jesus called him out to walk on the water, and he walked with him and then sank, okay, which is what we do. Jesus picked him up, put him back in the boat, right? And Peter denies Jesus three times. Why? Because our hearts can become hard by the littlest things. 
The littlest things can cause us to get a root of bitterness, the Bible says, and get a hard heart, and then we just don't rest. We can't find our rest in him. And so Peter's trying to figure out, how do I rest? My Lord's going to be killed. He's on trial. Ah, And people are coming to him and saying, do you know him? Oh, that's not going to be restful. No, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then the rooster crows, and Peter knows that he's denied the one he loves. And we can deny the ones we love. You know the beauty of that is that later Jesus comes back to him. He fixes a meal for Peter. Peter jumps out of a boat and swims. Great story at the end of the book of John, right? Where they're out fishing again. Jesus told Peter to stop fishing. Peter's like, well, I'm going back to fishing. Just like these Hebrews were going back to the Old Testament instead of trusting in Jesus. Jesus is like, I told you to like, go after people, like sheep, people, not fish. They're fishing. Jesus already has fish ready, and he's cooking them on the shoreline. Like, how do you get fish? He wasn't out here fishing with us. No, because he's God and he can make fish if he wants to. He's fixing fish. Peter sees him, recognizes Jesus. He jumps out of the boat and starts swimming. And the the best part of the story is it says that the boat pulled up at the same time Peter got there. I think that's hilarious because that's what we do. Oh, I'm going to get to Jesus first. And the guys in the boat are like, dude, come on, Peter, stroke, stroke. I mean, they're like rowing beside him right? Peter gets to the shore. Jesus already has the fish done. He's already taken care of everything. He says, come, eat with me, rest. Stop fishing. I've already taken care of it. And three times he asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. Three times he denied and three times he gets Peter to say, yes, I love you. And three times Jesus says, then don't harden your heart towards my people. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, tend my flock. Peter, don't harden your heart if you want to find true rest. In Hebrews 3, it goes on, chapter in verse 3, and says, For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was the person that the entire Old Testament celebrated. He was the one the covenant was given to for God's people. Just as the builder has more honor than the house. In other words, Moses was a part of the house of God. Jesus was the one building it. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. Moses was not trusting in his life in that moment. Moses could give his life to those people because he believed that God was going to give him rest. Moses could let his heart be hurt and soften his heart towards God and towards his people because he wasn't looking to get something on this side of eternity. He knew God would give it, so he gave his life willingly. He saw God's glory, which we'll see in a second. And when he saw it, it changed him forever. Says, as a testimony to what would be in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household. Moses was just a servant. You and I are just servants, so to speak. But Jesus is the one in charge of the house. He's the one who gets the house. It's all about him. And we are that household. We are children of God if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. How do you run a godly household? You constantly consider Jesus. You don't harden your heart. You find rest in him. And later, as we'll see, you go to the word of God. That's how you build a godly household. See, the house of God is not a church building. It's not a place we meet. The house of God is the human heart. We looked at that when we looked at the Holy Spirit last week. Moses was not about the now, but the future hope. So Christ has come, the Bible says, to inhabit us, to change us. Look at what 1 Peter 2 says. Coming to him, a living stone. When we consider Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we come to him a living stone when we surrender to him, having been rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. Rocks are not very valuable unless they're like diamonds. But like a normal rock... Then he says, you yourselves as living stones. That's an oxymoron. Stones aren't alive. They don't even have microorganisms in them, most of them. They're dead. They're really dead. Isn't it interesting that God picks like the most dead thing you can find to say, I can even make that hard-hearted dead thing come to life and use it. That should encourage you. Because you are as hard as a rock, right? Right? You are as dumb as a box of rocks. That's me, right? And God says, that's great. I can use that box of rocks. And he goes on and he says, look at this. Is being built into a spiritual house 
for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's like, I so want a relationship with you. I want you to be close to me. It was the priest that got to be close to God. It was the priest that got the privilege to serve everyone else and to make God's message known. It was the priest that got to communicate his commands and how wonderful they were and how good God was. It was the priest that got to do that. And he says, if you know Jesus, you're now one of those priests that I'm trying to soften your heart so you can go out to the hard hearts and tell them where rest can really be found. Ephesians says this, Paul is praying for the church and he says, I pray that Jesus may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. And see, faith isn't like a belief. Faith is belief and trust. It's both. It's action on the belief. That when you believe something, it actually affects the way you do things. And there are a lot of people running around. Politics in America is great at this. Where we will project a certain belief. We will tell people what what we want them to hear. And in the back room, behind the scenes, our heart at heart is working overtime. And then every once in a while, an email, a tweet, a recorded conversation or a video pops out. And everybody goes, oh, that's his real heart. That's her real heart. Ah. And then they'll come out and say, oh, I misspoke. No, that was your real heart. You've been exposed. And we can be the same way. The difference between us and them is that we have a Savior that we can come to who says, I'll forgive you and I'll take that hardness wherever it came from and I'll soften it if you let me. And I'll make you a person of integrity, which means it's an integer, it's a whole number. I'll make you whole so you can find rest. Isaiah 66 says this, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house could you possibly build for me? See, most of us are trying to run around and build something for God instead of saying, God, I can't build anything. I'm a dead stone. But if I give you myself as a stone, maybe you'll build something with me. Maybe you can use me to build something. That's the gospel. That's the whole Bible message. And what place could be my home, God says, My hand made all these things, and so they came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person. Look at this. One who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Those are the three opposites of our world today. I'll look favorably on a humble person. No, humble people get slaughtered. Humble people get killed in our world. But you humble, you dead. Seriously, it's bad for humble people. It goes on and it says, one who is submissive in spirit. So not only am I humble, which means I can't take matters into my own hands. I have to ask God if he, what he wants me to do. And it may be that I have to die like Jesus died. But then he tells me I need to submit to their version of death. Jesus submitted to the Roman persecution and the Roman death tool of his day, the cross. And that tool, which was one of the most gruesome ways to kill people ever invented by mankind, is now one of the most hopeful symbols for all of eternity. That's what God can do. And that's what he's talking about here in Isaiah when he says, I look for a humble, submissive, and I look for someone that when they read my word, they tremble at it. It's like, oh, I love this. Or, oh, man, Lord, I'm sorry. Like, there's a trembling. There's an awe. There's a wonder because we look at his word and we want it because we know how hard-hearted we are and we know we can't find rest in anyone else's words. Because every time someone gives us their word, they break it in this world. It doesn't happen. Does anybody tell the truth? Is anybody consistent? Yes, God is throughout all the Bible. We just don't like it. We just harden our hearts to it. In Acts, it says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breathes and breath and all things. God doesn't want anything from you. Because he has everything. He's not trying to use you. He just loves you. He genuinely is like, 
I just want a relationship. But here's the deal. You don't get to set the terms of the relationship. I do. And the terms of the relationship are I died for you. That's why the terms I set for you when you go out and make relationships is that I ask you to give your life for others. Because that's what I did. Those are the terms. That's what Moses did. That's what Abraham did. It's the story of Scripture. And when we start looking for what we can get, like Destiny talked about in her testimony, instead of how we can serve, we twist God into who we want him to be. And that is incredibly dangerous. And we will not find rest. Look, Jason and I have talked about this numerous times. Both of us have been a part of megachurches. That when we planted this church together, we didn't know what we were doing. Sometimes I don't think I still know what I'm doing. (laughs) We just go through the Bible and say, this is what God says. Let's try that. Maybe I misinterpreted, we'll see. But I know what I don't want to do because I saw staff person after staff person exhausted by the modern ministry of church. Burned out. How many more pastors have to fail over and over again before we change what we're doing? How many more mega churches that are producing all the material for everybody? Some of them are good. I'm not judging all of them. Many of them, though, are a part of this system that is just hardening people's hearts. They won't look at people and say, your heart's hard. I want to help you soften it. Here are God's commands. These will help. I want to help you obey them. No, no, no. I just want you to know you're loved. And then they wake up one day and they're like, this is not worth it. I'm not restful. I'm working all the time. Nothing's working. That's because I gave you a false expectation to begin with. I didn't tell you up front that God says you can surrender to me and take on my yoke and my burden is light or you get your own yoke of slavery and a heavy burden. There's no no burden. When God created rest, do you remember what he did? He worked seven days and on the, or six days and on the seventh day he rested. And then he told man in the garden in perfection, you're going to work sun up to sundown six days a week. And then the seventh day, total rest. That's what you're going to do. And we have been trying to find a different way to rest ever since he told us to do that. We keep trying to find a different way to manage the systems instead of just saying, what's God's system? What does he say to do? Maybe it's a good idea. I've said this numerous weeks now. The Bible says not to touch or be around bats. It's It's in the book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus. It's in there. It says they're unclean animals. Why do you have a mask on? Because we won't listen to God. Well, we can control the virus if we keep it in the lab and we play with it and we... Or maybe it's, well, no, now, Matt, you're believing the conspiracy theory. It really did come from bats. Okay, well, some, a human had to play with a bat. It's not like a bat flew in and was like, ah, got you, bye, and flew out. We, we will not listen, because I know better, because I'm a scientist, and I can make things work better. Look, I'm all for science. I'm all for things. But at some point, you just got to look and say, God said this was bad, and we keep finding coronaviruses in bats. Maybe we should just avoid bats and not play with them. That'd be genius. No, let's sell them in the market to eat. Let's make bat soup. Let's find some other. No, they're dirty. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just telling you that when you start to harden your heart, even on little things, it's costly. When you don't know what God's word says because you've hardened your heart to the Old Testament and been like, well, I'm glad we don't have to do any of that stuff anymore. I'm glad that's passed. You miss the truths of God that will protect you, your children, your grandchildren, and for the future, give glory to him. He goes on and says this in Revelation, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. The sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. In other words, she got herself ready. Are you getting yourself ready? Or are you like a bad bride? You know, you're like the bridezilla, right? Where's my wedding dress? What are you going to do for me? When are you going to show up? This is what I want. Or are you like, I'm just trying to get myself ready so that when, you're, when you come to get me, which I don't know when that is, because I don't need to know, honey, you go ahead and plan it. I don't care what cake it is. I don't care what plates we have. You, you just plan it, honey. I trust you. You're my husband. I believe in you. Boy, that's radical today. I fully trust you. 
and you're an idiot, and I still trust you, and God's grace is on you. Praise the Lord. That's what this says, that the bride adorned for her husband, saying, when he comes back, I want to be ready. And then it says, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. It's personal, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Hebrews goes on to say, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's the rebellion of the Old Testament. When they built a golden calf, when Moses was on the mountain and got the Ten Commandments and then broke them. That, all that story is like, they rebelled against God after all the miracles and everything he had done. Then he says, don't harden your heart like them. On the day of testing in the wilderness. You mean God has the right to test us? Yes, because he's a good teacher. Let me ask you. Let's just be honest for five seconds. Would you be a good student if you didn't have tests and quizzes? Come on. I would have been horrible. Right? Be like, oh, there's plenty of time. Oh, I I got time. Put it off. Most of us don't love learning. We don't love the word. We don't love. No, we harden our heart to what we want to do. And then if there's leftover time, then I'll work in my studies. I mean, we built an entire college system built on that. The the students aren't really coming to college to get an education. They're coming for the experience. And they're loaning their rear ends out to have the experience and graduate with a degree that doesn't help them after they get out. And then guess what happens? They get hard-hearted and they want everybody else to pay for it. Duh. The Bible told us that's what we're going to do. I'm not judging them. I'm just saying they need to consider Jesus before college, during college, after college, how they spend money, how they don't spend money, how they spend their time, how they don't spend their time. Do I work a job? Do I not work a job? Consider what he says. But if you don't even know what he says and you don't even listen to anybody that's trying to help you and tell you things you don't want to hear, then guess what? You're going to be hard-hearted and you're going to be exhausted and you're going to be mad and you're going to riot in the streets and you're going to hate life. And you're going to think that if I can get control and if I was just God, I'd fix all this. No, you wouldn't. You'd make it worse. You would. So would I. He goes on and says this. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. See, we get deceived, and then it's, our hearts get hard. And he says, for we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. In other words, God is not saying you have to work to, say stay, to stay saved. God is saying, if you truly know me and you tr- truly surrender to me, I will not leave you alone. I'm coming after you because you're mine. You're my child. And I love you, and I'm not going to leave you alone. You're mine. And so I am going to help you to endure to the end. I'm going to be all over you because I love you, because I want to be with you. But I'm not going to let you bring your mess in and hurt anybody else. So I'm going to have to work with that. And I'm going to have to do discipline and call you back to me so that you can be a part of the family of God. That's what this is talking about. It's not talking about you receive Jesus by grace, that it's a free gift. And then you're like, oh, now i got to try to work to keep it. No, because that will make you hard-hearted because you'll be tired all the time. You rest in his grace. You rest in what he's trying to do in your life. And you read his word and you say, I'll believe that, not this. And I'm going to rest in this, even though it doesn't make sense. I'm, not, I'm going to do this. He goes on and says this. As it is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He repeats it again. For who heard and rebelled? Was it really all who came out of Egypt under Moses? And who was he provoked with for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? In other words, an entire generation died because of their sin. And who did he swear to that they would not enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And that's entering the first promised land. He's not necessarily talking about eternity here. He's not necessarily talking about they can't get to eternity. He's saying they kept looking for something else to rest in. And I asked them, you ready for this? To go to war in the promised land. You see, we want rest, but we won't fight for it. We won't work six days to get to a seventh day of rest. We just expect God should give us rest. It's a demand. It's a right. 
And God says, I do. I give you me. You can rest in me. But if you want to do your life a certain way, I'm telling you that there's a way to do life. And if you don't believe in me and you have unbelief because of what I say in my word, I promise you, you're not going to find rest. It's amazing to me how the martyrs of the faith throughout history found rest even in their death, how they worshiped and cried out to God as they were dying because they knew that this body wasn't going to find rest on this side of eternity permanently. And here he is, and he says, look, today, don't harden your heart. Belief is just simple obedience. It's quiet confidence regardless of circumstances. Exodus 31 is the story of the rebellion. It says, anyone who does work on the Sabbath must be put to death. God was so serious about rest that he said, all of you need to hold one another accountable to rest. You also need to hold one another accountable to work. It's six days and one day. It's looking to serve and give your life. And he says, the Israelites must observe the Sabbath, celebrating it through their generations as a perpetual covenant. This is a sign forever between me and the Israelites. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. When he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave the two tablets of the testimony, the stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. And when Moses comes off the mountain, they're all worshiping a golden calf. And actually it was God that kicked him off the mountain. He's like, go back, the people, they're they're rebelling. And so Moses had to go back to deal with the rebellion. And after Moses has to deal with the rebellion and a bunch of people die, look at Moses' heart. Look at this. Look at his heart. Now, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, Moses is like, I don't know if I have your favor, but I think I do. God had already told him he had favor, but he didn't believe him. He's doubting him. Please teach me your ways, and I will know you and find favor in your sight. Moses says, please teach me. I have such a hard heart. I don't know what to do. I just want to know you and your ways. And look at this. Now consider that this nation is your people. He looks and he says, God, I know you want to smite them. I know you want to destroy them. But just consider that that they are yours. He's asking God, remember your kindness Then he replied, the Lord says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, Moses. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. Moses is like, I don't want rest. I love this. He's like, I'm going to give you rest. And Moses is like, well, that's fine. Like, I'm okay with rest, but really I want more. I want a relationship. I'm not looking to get rest from you or get something from you. I just want to know you and your glory. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God says, this is who I am. I am loving, I am gracious, I am compassionate. Listen, we've been reading a book together in our men's study and one of the chapters, chapter 16 of this book, just, I've been wrestling with it for multiple weeks now. And what it says in that chapter, and it's spot on, is that God's Core nature is to be merciful, loving, and compassionate. You cannot earn God's love, mercy, or compassion. You can't stalk him enough. You can't buy his love. You can't try to, you can't work off your goods and work off your bads and try to get him to love you. That is completely against the word of God. It's against his character. It's not possible. But you know what you can provoke God with? His wrath. The Bible over and over says we can provoke God to anger, we can provoke him to wrath, we can provoke him to discipline us. But it never says we can provoke him to love us because he is love. And isn't that apparent? If your kid's trying to earn your love, are you failing as a parent? Probably. But you have to discipline And you hope they respond to your discipline so you can give more of your grace and more of your compassion and more of your love. But if they don't respond, all you're left with is a hard heart that you have to deal with. As we wrap up, Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, while the promise to enter his rest remains, in other words, there's a promise that God has given that you will have rest if you know Jesus. There is a promised rest. There is a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. There is rest coming. Let us fear that none of you should miss it. 
That's anybody hearing this letter, any of you. Don't miss God's rest, for we also have received the good news just as they did. In other words, what they received was the good news about Jesus, just like what we've received is the good news that we need a Savior. Then he says, but the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. Let me ask you, are you united with those who heard it in faith? Have you placed your faith fully in Christ? Are you still trying to earn it? Is your heart so hard that that you can't just come to God and say, here it is, it's a mess? Or is your heart so proud that you're like, I don't even even have a hard heart, I'm so great. That's not humility. He looks and he says, for we who have believed enter the rest. In keeping with what he said, so I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. We can provoke God to anger, but we cannot provoke him to love because he is already fully loving. And yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. In other words, God has been doing his work since the beginning. He knew the plan. He set up the plan. He knew Jesus was going to come, that we needed a Savior, and that we were to keep crying out, God save us. God send us a Savior. God help us. That's the whole Old Testament. Jesus comes. Hey, I'm the Savior. Now we look forward with Moses, with all the past people, to the time when Jesus will come for us all. Since the foundation of the world, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all of his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he specifies a certain day, today, speaking through David, after such a long time, as previously stated, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And then he goes on to clarify, if Joshua was the one that actually gave them the promised land and gave them rest, God would not have spoken, or God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. It's coming. It's the already but not yet. For the person who has entered into his rest has rested from his own works. That means I'm not trying to earn God's love. I'm not trying to get my goods to outweigh my bads. I rest in who God is, in his love and his grace, and I look at him and say, you're God, I'm not. You can do with me what you want. I just want you. And then he says, let us then make every effort to enter that rest, the rest of grace, The rest of, he's awesome. So that no one will fall into the same pattern of works and disobedience. That we keep the same patterns. The same patterns of sin have been there through all of human history and we keep falling for it. And God says, if you'll just get in my grace, if you'll just trust me, Ephesians 2 says, together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up. He seated us in the heavens. Do you know what a seated position means? It means you're resting. Some of you are a little more resting right now than others because I've been going a while. I get it. Paul had someone fall out of a window and die and he had to resurrect him in the middle of his sermon. So there's that. Please don't do that. I don't think I can resurrect you. So just so you know. But being seated is resting. It's, it's my body's not going anywhere. I'm, I'm here. I'm present. He says, I want you to rest in me so that in the coming ages, God might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in the Messiah who is Yahweh who saves. That's Christ Jesus. That's what his name means. For you are saved by grace through faith. It's just saying, I believe you. I trust you. I give you my life. And this is not of yourselves, it's a free gift, not from works so that no one can boast. So there's no pride, it's humility, like Moses had humility. There's no hard-heartedness, there's no I'm better than you, or I'm worse than you. Nope, we're all in the same playing field, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, we do good works, not because we're trying to get something, but because we're so excited to be a part of this household. You want me to do the dishes? I got it. You want me to sweep? I got it. Because I just love you. I want to do it. Because I just want to serve you. And that's all of our hearts, right? We do that every day. Look, there's a mess. Somebody else can clean it up. (laughs) God said, yeah, there's a mess, and I'm going to clean it up. That's what God's been doing for all of human history. And he says he wants to do that through us. 
So then, he says, remember. We're remembering 9-11 right now. And can I just tell you, there's a lot greater things and worse things that have happened than 9-11. Our Bible gives us multiple 9-11s over and over again. And God constantly gives us his hope for the word of God. And this is how you keep your hope. So do you, do you want to not harden your heart? Do you want to rest? Here's how you do it. Here's how the author breaks this down. Don't drift in your attention. Trust God. Don't harden your hearts. And here's how you're going to find rest. For the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the hearts. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows your real thoughts, your real ideas. He knows what you're trying to work to get from him. He knows your false prayers. He knows all of that, and he still offers himself to you. Every single day, he calls to us and we try to hide. We try to cover our nakedness. And God says, you can come to me naked. It's fine. I'll clothe you. And we're going to have to give an account. And when I get to heaven someday, here's what I'm going to tell God. God, my account is paid by you. It's your grace. I, I deserve nothing. And then the author goes on after saying, if you don't want a hard heart, if you want to find rest, you've got to be in the word. You've got to study the word. You've got to know it. We've got to encourage each other daily with the word. This is what he says. Therefore, you've got a hard heart. You're looking for rest. I've given you my word. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as you will be tested, yet without sin. Therefore, look at this, look at this, circle this, underline it in your Bible, this is amazing. Therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. See, we want our timing. And God says, I won't give you my timing, but here's what I will give you. You have complete access to come to me anytime. There's no longer a veil. There's no longer a wall. You don't have to wait once a year to offer sacrifices. I'm offering myself to you every moment, every day to consider me at every turn. I'm offering you something that they longed for and that all of us long for that someday Jesus will be actually with us instead of it being like a weak FaceTime call. (laughs) And he looks and he says, therefore we can approach God. Not because we're good, not because our goods outweigh our bads, not any of that. We can approach God because of what he did for us, his grace, that he changes our hard heart and says, I want you to rest in me because this world will not give you your rest and this world will harden you. Let me ask you this morning, do you have his grace? What areas of your life are you hard towards God in? What areas of your life do you, have you hardened your heart? And in this moment, God may be telling you, give it to me. Give it to me. Give me your hard heart. Find rest in me. Go to my word. It's for you. Get other people in your life that will help you. That's the message of Hebrews that this author is writing to people who know God. If you don't know him, you can right now in this moment approach the throne of grace boldly and fall down and say, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy to be anything. And I'm done working. I'm done trying harder and harder to try to get love and get what I want. I just surrender to you and I want to know your ways and what you want. And if you do that, you have a heavenly father who is smiling at that. It's a beautiful thing. And if you've hardened your heart, Tell somebody. Have them pray for you. You guys have gone through some tough stuff. You have broken spirits. You've labored in your life. Even if you're young, there's things you've had to go through that no human being should have to go through. And God says, I understand. I can sympathize with your weakness because I was the high priest who paid the price. We can trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word.
Thank you for the folks that are here. I thank you for Hebrews written to people that were supposed to know you but were drifting away and they stopped trusting you. And Lord, you called back through this book their attention so that you could tell them that they could approach you, that you had love and grace for them and you had commands for them because they were good. Father, I pray that if anyone here has hardened their heart, I pray that they would allow you to soften it. I pray that if anyone here is trying to find rest or hope in something that you're not in, that they would give that up and find their hope and rest in you so that they can then labor and do works in your name instead of to try to get to some position in life or some relationship or something. Lord, help us to be a surrendered people to you. Help us to be humble like you were humble and like Moses was humble. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our lives and in our hearts. And may it start with me. May it start with those on, in this room and those that are joining us online to be your messengers, to go out into the world and display the riches of your kindness and grace in a world that has no rest, in a world that's been hardened. We trust you. Amen.